Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 44 of Level Up, 60 minutes of live Q&A, where your questions and votes really do drive the show. Use the Slido link in the chat to vote up the questions that you would most like answered, and of course, to add your own. We're live on Mondays at 8 uh, every week and Fridays at 2pm UK time, where we live stream to both YouTube and LinkedIn. You can find out much more about what we do by visiting our website, apmginternational.com, and just searching for Level Up. The whole show, as I say, is really produced and driven by yourself. So do get those questions in and vote up the questions that you most want answered. Our panel to the, for today um, uh, addresses a broad spectrum of different experiences in the world of stakeholder engagement. And we're really delighted to welcome each and every one of them. So let's jump straight in and meet them. Uh, joining us for the first time today from Australia is Laurie Bowman. Laurie's background is in engineering and construction. He leads project portfolio planning and control at Synchrony Projects. He's a trainer and advisor for the whole suite of PPM planning, assurance, risk management and control. Welcome to Level Up, Laurie. Great to see you. Thank you very much, Nick. Good to be here. Excellent. Thank you very much. Jeroen Hudson is a regular contributor to level up and has a strong consulting background implementing um, uh, multinational ERP systems, uh, mergers and acquisitions, change and implementation programs. Welcome back, Euron. Great to see you again. Thanks, Nick. Indeed. Very nice to be here again. Yes. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Cruise joins us for his second appearance on Level Up. He works, of course, for the Business Relationship Management Institute, where he's their director of worldwide advocacy. Tom enjoys traveling and he's got a passion for discovering and learning from different cultures all around the world. So welcome back, Tom. Great to see you. Appreciate it, Nick. Thanks for having me again. Okay, excellent. Patrick von Schlag is an expert speaker and, of course, the president of the Deep Creek Center over in the US, where he's clocked up an impressive quota of helping more than 400 different organizations adopt new ways of working with leading practice around the world. Welcome back, Patrick. Thank you, Nick. It's very nice to be back with you. Brilliant. Okay. And thank you for joining at such an ungodly hour in the middle of the night for both yourself and Tom. I'm kind of feeling for you. I really am. But uh, thank you very much. If you're watching the recording of this, you have no idea, but it's seriously late where they are. All right. We'll talk a bit more about that a wee bit later. Um, Nick uh, is actually in a much more time zone friendly location. He's in Dublin in Ireland. He's an independent change leader working in the financial services sector at the moment and has a proven track record of delivering transformational change programs around the world. Welcome back, Nick. Great to see you. Thank you very much, Nick. Looking forward to today. Hey, thank you very much. Our question master for today is Suchitra Jacob, and she's joining us again from Bangalore in India. So Suchitra, let's jump straight in. We've got lots of questions stacking up. and We'll have our first question, please. Hi, everyone. First question is from our panelist, Laurie. How do you plan for engaging with project stakeholders? Okay, well, Laurie, I'm going to come to you last, if I may. Patrick, let's kick off and then we'll hear from Yurin. So I think it's actually very important to begin your journey with your project stakeholders even before you have a project. When you're building your business case, when you're trying to assess options, you want to be able to identify stakeholders, stakeholder value and outcomes, because it's very fundamental to making the case 
whether the project should even take place and what the relevant level of interest and engagement of the different stakeholders should be. Thank you very much indeed. Yuren, uh, how do you go about the planning yeah. phase for engaging? Fully agree with uh, Patrick on this, and it's uh, really you have to understand what it is, uh, what you will be doing with your project, and okay, who will get affected by uh, the result of the project, or who do you need to uh, help you support and really get it done? And if you understand that, well, then engage with them. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Nick, your thoughts, please. So I'm going to talk about coming into a, uh, a program or a project a little bit later once it started, because that often happens. You know, you don't have the opportunity of engaging that early. Um, and for me, then, the, it, it's absolutely vital that people understand what you're out to achieve. And so communicating with both your project stakeholders in terms of who are delivering the project um, or the program, as well as your impacted stakeholders, is, is vital in getting them to understand what are you trying to achieve from a change perspective. Um, because when, when people understand, they're more likely to accommodate you and interventions that you need to conduct. Excellent. Thank you very much. I totally agree with that. A lot of the projects I worked on, <laughs> stakeholder engagement came came far too late, far too late <laughs> in the project. It was almost like an afterthought. It was like, oh, oh hang on a minute, hang on. Isn't there there's something in this method that says stakeholder, you know, and, and so it kind of happened um, almost, you know, at the 11th hour and the 59th minute. Laurie, you work in this space. You're an expert in this space. How should we go about planning to engage? Well, interestingly, I agree with the perspectives of all of the panellists so far, 100%. So early on, understanding who, what are the systems and who are the stakeholders who may be impacted and what are their perceptions of the project, their perceptions of risk and value, and then working through, with them as well through the implementation as well so that change impacts are understood so that people can transition to that new way of working or that new normal, whatever it is as uh, seamlessly as possible. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that often, you know, stakeholder groups emerge as um, protesters. <laughs> it's quite a strong word. But, you know, as folks who are going to be holding back the project, and you kind of think, what are they doing? And then you suddenly realise kind of think, ah, do you know what? They're probably a stakeholder community, you know, and maybe we should have thought about <laughs> engaging with them a little earlier so great first question thank you very much laurie and thank you for your guidance there brilliant Sachitra, let's move on please we'll take our next question if we may next question from your own uh, panelist how do you get a stakeholder involved in a change the person is too busy in the operational work okay very good nick and then patrick so this is an excellent question because uh, in my experience nearly every time I've, I've delivered a, a program, stakeholders are too busy in operational work and, um, and they have to manage or balance being involved in business as usual uh, and, and, in, um, and in programs. And, and I think um, there's, there's multiple approaches, but I'm going to just talk about one, which I think is, uh, is, is very, very important. And that is to ensure that you have not only the leadership buy-in, but leadership communication of the value that they see uh, of that particular program or, or project. 
when people understand how important this is to the business, um, they are more likely to uh, give you the time or plan to be involved the, the way that, um, that, that they need to. If they don't understand that, and if they are not sure of the value that leadership is placing on delivering that program, uh, you probably will find challenges getting them um, to give you the time that you need. Thank you very much indeed, Patrick and then Tom. So this question opens a whole bunch of different challenges. Are we thinking about the collaboration model as two-way or one-way? Are we worried about not being able to gain access to them because we want to tell them things or because we want them to engage in a two-way interaction with us to collaborate and communicate in ways that will help the project move forward, both in terms of the vision of the and goals of the project, but also how that affects their operational work and why we need their wisdom as we're working through things. The other key area I encourage people to think about is choosing communications vehicles that make sense for that particular stakeholder, right? It may not be possible for them to engage in meeting schedules based on your timeframes, but they may be able to gain access to task boards, uh, participate in other types of offline feedback mechanisms that give them more flexibility in how to engage with you. Mm, it's going to be a key part to this, isn't it? It's making sure that the mechanism for that engagement, communication and engagement is, is going to be fit for purpose. Um, Tom, let's hear from you before we go back to Yarun. Thank you. And I just want to start by saying both Nick and Patrick were spot on, I think, with, with their answers. It, it, it is important to have buy-in from leadership and those around you and those around your stakeholder as well so that they can see the potential importance and impact of this type of work that they may be looking to be engaged in. And then I think I'd like to elaborate a little bit more on sort of what Patrick said in terms of understanding where they are where your stakeholder is at. And in order to be able to help prove the value of what this work might be, you need to understand what their values are and where their needs are in the current moment. So even if you're not able to, to sort of anticipate that by any means, it, it comes down to have a conversation with them and, and ask them questions and, and get to know what are their challenges right now? What are they experiencing? And perhaps there's some room for synergy that their current work is going on that you might have room for with with what you're bringing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Some really great thoughts there. Thank you very much indeed, Tom. Um, you're in, and you, I, I guess you must have hit this situation many times, you know, in the past in, yes. in your past work. So, um, do you have any secret sauce, or is it a combination of what everybody's been suggesting? Well, um, it is uh, very good uh, what everyone is suggesting, but the collaboration. It is uh, not only talk with uh, the stakeholder, but also with the colleagues of the stakeholder. And hey, then we find out that they also see it is important. So they will take over a bit of uh, operational work of that stakeholder so that he can get the time to do this work. And uh, very important uh, that there are situations that you also need the leadership. Okay, maybe we can hire another person taking over a bit of your operational work so that you indeed have the time because you're crucial to well 
to be strong involved in this change. Yeah, it's a really good point, isn't it, about tapping into the uh, sponsorship all right, of any project or programme in order to be able to create the conditions in which colleagues can contribute. So if your stakeholders are internal within the organisation, you can do that. If they're external to the organisation, it can be a little bit more you know, tricky to be able to get that quality of time, if you like, and the frequency of engagement that you really need in order to be able to move things forward. And that's where I think some of that, um, you know, really deep thinking about how, how, you know, it's all in the how, isn't it? You know, how you go about doing this uh, becomes super, super important for you. So um, really good. Thank you very much indeed, panel. So great answers to what is a perennial question. You know, um, busy people get things done. So they're always getting invited to take Art in projects, and they kind of eventually end up with this sort of salami sliced calendar that looks crazily busy um, and doesn't actually give you the engagement that you so desire. Very good, thank you, Sachitra. Um, now then, if you're watching this, okay, from your desk, and I know many of you are because we can see the stats <laughs> kind of coming in live to us, you can put your question directly to the panel. All right, so you could just type a question into the chat on LinkedIn or on YouTube. Our colleagues will pick it up from there and very soon it will be in front of the panel. So please do do that. It'd be great to have some live questions in the mix. Okay, so Chitra, let's take our next question, please. We have a live question that has just come in. It's from Tanya oh. Elahim. <laughs> yeah. What are your tips for engaging stakeholders who are openly opposed and have power to block? Wow. Okay. Now this is this is one of those kind of critical ones, isn't it? Do you do you engage with them directly or do you go around them? You know, how are you going to deal with this kind of situation where they have the authority and the power and the the kind of the motivation, if you like, to kind of block? Laurie, let's hear from you first, and then we'll hear from Nick. Well, this this, this is a great question, and and these are really among the most important stakeholders that we have to deal with. One. They've obviously got power and they're very interested in the project. And particularly if their values are different or they're potentially they could have a different perspective of the project, um, this is where you can get real value from asking those questions, unpacking their perception of the world or their perception of the project, and then working as much as possible to, to either align or find those synergies where the likelihood of having a block or a resistance to the project can be reduced. Uh, as much as possible and ideally as early as possible in the life cycle. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Nick? I think just to start off, these are probably some of your most important stakeholders because often uh, if you can win them over, um, they they go from resisting to actually enabling. And and I think there's no there's no easy answer because different people have different motivations and they have different uh, ways in which you need to uh, engage with them. Um, I think in, in past experience, people who are openly opposed, have power to block, usually sit at a, at a higher level. Um, and you need, to, you need to be able to sell the program to them or the, or the, or the project on the value that it's going to create, not just for them, um, but, for, but for the company. And that's often an engagement, a two-way discussion, a dialogue. And in my experience, this is not necessarily an easy thing, um, and there's no easy way to do it. It will take time, it'll take effort, uh, and it'll take you being wise in how you 
how you deliver or how you share information with them um, to hopefully turn them around. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Tom, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And going into that conversation, it, it is important to information gather as much as possible. So even potentially prior to speaking with that, that stakeholder who, who might be blocking or having the power to do so, um, have an understanding of, of what their values are, of who, who around them can provide insight. So have conversations with others who interact with them maybe more regularly so that you can get an understanding of, of what works for them in terms of communication methods, as well as, you know, you're not going into that conversation blind, right? You get a, you at least have an idea of maybe their approach or how they may respond to certain types of questions or even elements of a conversation. Absolutely. Some great insight and uh, completely agree with that. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Patrick and then Euron. So... When someone very senior has that kind of open resistance to a project or program, there's almost always a real reason under the hood, right? They're not doing it to be spiteful or to be challenged. They often see things or know things that maybe other stakeholders don't know. Uh, a lot of times these folks are some of the less popular of the senior stakeholders, a risk manager, a compliance manager, someone who has deep knowledge of a meaningful risk that could compromise the ability of the project to deliver its goals. And so when you give these stakeholders a full hearing and you give them an opportunity to share their concerns and then engage them in problem solving those concerns, you can often convert them. They often, for example, you know, wish to see certain types of risk mitigations or some types of contingency planning that will encourage them to be more supportive of the overall. Mm. Mm, really good insight, actually, because you know what we often see in a behaviour is is a symptom. <laughs> It's not the cause. So you're absolutely right, Patrick. You know, um, just find out, just find out, try and explore and find out. Um, Euron, final thoughts on this one before we move on. Yeah, final thoughts. Uh, don't try to do it all yourself, um, but um, try to, um, well, we have the polarization, but we might uh, have, so we might also have stakeholders with the other opinion than this stakeholder and facilitate the discussions of the other stakeholders with this stakeholder and well, the best democratic approach and what will finally be the total conclusion. Get it really into one community, getting to a, a well, common decision, which they all agree to. Yeah, 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 I completely agree with that. They, they, you have to be, you have to develop this interesting um, situational diversity in your approach, I would say. So, you know, on the one hand, as a project manager, project leader, you have to show that leadership. You know, you are bringing everybody, bringing the whole orchestra, you're standing at the front of the orchestra and you're bringing everybody in at the right time in order to be able to produce the desired outcome. On the other hand, you need to actually listen and respond to 
you know these various inputs along the way and if necessary you know um if, if those look concerns indeed are legitimate you know address those concerns as you do so so sometimes it, it it's le- it's quite right that you take three steps forward followed by one or perhaps sometimes two steps backwards or at least sideways a little bit in order to be able to ensure that the change that you are delivering the transformation of the organization that you are delivering is actually going to stick otherwise it is simply superficial and may well get reversed pretty quickly so very good thank you panel and what a great question in from our audience thank you very much indeed um uh, to tanya for asking that one thanks um let's move on please Chitra. Another live question from Shivani Dheeraj. When multiple projects and programs demand time from the same stakeholder group, how can we best manage this? Mm. It's that kind of classic situation, isn't it, around, you know, resource management and uh, allowing people to engage in different ways at different times. I guess one of the things, um, you know, throughout this uh, is to, you know, think about those very real, you know, resourcing constraints that you face day to day on projects and come up with a plan, you know, that's going to work well with those individuals and those teams, those communities, if you like. Um, uh, Laurie, how would you go about this? Yeah, this is a, a really interesting dilemma and, and one that's not often done well, but it comes down to the, the program and portfolio management level. So ideally, as much as possible, if you are in a multiple project environment like this one with constrained resources or key resources that are in demand, uh, project prioritisation criteria, so actively engaging, having a dynamic portfolio of projects where you're continuously sensing and having some criteria by which it's really clear which projects are of higher priority than others, just to make it easier for those stakeholders to also then allocate their time and resources to whichever project is delivering the most value or most critical at a particular point in time. Excellent. Thank you. Great idea. Use those skills that you have in that program, portfolio management um, uh, methodologies and so on. Um, Patrick, and then we'll hear from Nick. Just a couple of thoughts. One, of course, is it's important to acknowledge this. When we're asking these stakeholders for time and and investments and effort, that we understand that we are competing with many other constraints on their time. And so when we ask them how we engage them, how we manage, for example, to time box their efforts so that we can limit the amount of cycles that we're demanding from them and also clearly articulate the value proposition not only to the project but to their particular stakeholder family and why we're asking for that time from them thank you very much indeed and uh nick your thoughts so i just want to uh, agree you know solving this problem um you have to go higher than just the program or project that you're involved in because it now is impacting the greater uh, um, view or the, or, the, or the greater business aspect. Um, so prioritization, absolutely. Um, in, in my experience, you know, one of the things to try and plan up front, because this will happen um, in, in organizations where you're running multiple programs, is to um, try and ensure that you don't just have 
one or two stakeholders who hold uh, all of the knowledge, all of the wisdom. Um, and, and, and so as part of your planning, build teams around those, those key people who you know down the line are going to be pulled in, in multiple directions. It's not easy because obviously, you know, you're looking at added costs and all of those kind of things. But in environments where there's multiple programs, projects, um, I think it's, it's, it's vital that that is part of the planning up front so that you don't have these key stakeholders uh, being a bottleneck to, um, to achieving the goals. Thank you. You're in. Yeah, it's uh, also agree with that. But uh, uh, the priority setting and in a similar situation, I had the discussion with all the stakeholders and let's uh, well, together uh, distribute our work a bit and, and set the priority. Mm, mm, mm. I think the, the other thing that I would suggest as well in thinking through those priorities um, is to consider where these different groups are. Sometimes um, the noisy can attract more attention. And sometimes that's right, by the way. Okay. And then on other occasions, it really isn't. And the stakeholders you may need to be most concerned about are the really quiet ones. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, just have a little think. Yeah. You know, um, you know, many, many years ago when we were kind of doing payroll implementations. Um, stakeholder communities there, it was the quiet ones that we were most concerned about, working in local government, payroll in local government. By the way, if you've ever implemented payroll in local government, I take my hat off to you because um, it's not the easiest thing to do in the world at all. So very well done if you got that right. Um, but it's, it's just thinking that through. You know, the presence of something is good. The absence of something may be a little warning as well for you to tune into. So make a note of that and uh, see how you go. Very good. Suchitra, let's move on, please. We'll take our next question. Another live question from Paco Bits. What is an effective way of measuring stakeholder engagement and monitoring and controlling engagement? Any tips on a qualitative way to measure engagement? All right. Okay, panel. So how do you go about measurement when it comes to stakeholder engagement who would like to kick us off with their thinking um, on this particular one um yes please tom jump straight in absolutely so that can <laughs> it can be pretty difficult right to get a sense of the the qualitative elements of of a relationship right of how how you're going about driving value with somebody around you and it, so because it's not easy right it, you need to be able to put a plan in place prior uh, and and one tool that i often like to use right is actually a value plan tracker so it's getting a sense of at the very beginning of a project or an idea stage is setting out criteria obviously the quantitative criteria for what you want to see happen what you anticipate happening cost savings, revenue, growth, whatever that may be, right? Then also getting a sense of, well, we're all working in this together, right? We're still building a relationship and, and we're looking to create and drive value as a team. So just getting an understanding of people's emotional states and where they are can be really beneficial. So I, I would just give my biggest recommendation of have that conversation with them let them know that you care 
and let them know that you want their conversation and, and their input to be heard. So constantly validating and going back and having these conversations and having those check-in conversations can really give you a sense of how the relationship is driving together. And if at one point it starts to veer off and you have a, you know, there's a disagreement or something like that, at least you've had that check-in conversation and you can steer it back on track just by feeling, even if the, the quantitative elements are, are currently there. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Nick and then Laurie. So also just to agree, defining quantitative as well as qualitative. Quantitative could be you know, attending meetings, could be um, passing on communication, could be demonstrating um, uh, you know, commitment in terms of assigning resources at the required time, etc. But qualitative is also important. Um, you know, in terms of attitude, and what I have used in the past is is actually assigning uh, project team members to certain stakeholders out in the business, and you know, every second week or so, bringing everybody together for half an hour and saying, "So, where are your folks?" And actually, you know, just assigning uh, a simple view: are they green? In other words, they're good, they're happy. Are they orange? Are they demonstrating some resistance? Do we need to be implementing some uh, some ways of engagement or are they throwing out you know red warning signs what what do we do but um, track that you know make it a priority because uh, this can easily run away with you and you end up um, with resistance and you don't understand why thank you very much indeed uh, Laurie and then Patrick so yeah I, I agree with both Tom and Nick. And uh, well, certainly for me, the one program where I've seen it done really, really well was incorporating elements of what both Tom and Nick said. We were fortunate to have a organisational psychologist on a program as part of a, a culture change initiative, but also involved quantitative measures. But what we did was a, a team climate survey to understand what the sense of what stakeholders felt, how they trusted people who were more senior than them, how comfortable they were with sharing information, uh, which, which really did set a baseline. And it was actually colour-coded similar to what Nick was saying, so that you know, aggressive or sort of confrontational behaviour was regarded as red, um, or passive or avoiding sort of behaviour, not, not engaging, was, uh, was regarded as yellow, I think, and more constructive behaviour was categorised as green. So it was a very simple, nice visual tool we would use on a very long-term program to every year check in on how we were going, what progress we were making to improve engagement and collaboration between the team members. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Um, so let's go for uh, Patrick, please, and then Euron. So in Cotter's organizational change model, he talks about this idea of a guiding coalition, some of whom are have authority in the organization, and many of whom are just influential. They're the people in an organization everybody looks to for signs and signals. Should I back and support this initiative or should I not? At the very beginning of any project or program, it's important to take into account the organizational change aspects of it. This includes identifying these guiding coalition pieces and then putting some type of a qualitative metric and i really liked the one that laurie just laid out 
uh, some kind of very simple green, amber, red that goes to each of those guiding coalition members and asks for their temperature on the ground from their people. And you know, if they are having trouble or not getting follow-on ability to empower those folks, that provides us a trigger to go in and to start spending more energy with that stakeholder. Okay, thank you. Yuren? Yeah, agree with what everyone is saying, of course. And of course, we know that here there are more than enough methodologies in. And specifically, oh, you go to the right one, the key benefits measurements of the stakeholder. Yeah, what's in it for them? And well, make that measurable and uh, of course, have the engagement with them to see if they really accept that it is those benefits for them or minimize the pain of change if it is this benefits for them. Okay, thank you very much. One thing that I, I would say, and by the way, you're in, let's um, give us the, the name and the author of the book and we'll share it in the chat with the folks who are watching. One thing that I would say is that a lot of organizations leap towards surveying people at this point. All right, They want to see um, milestones and they want to attribute um, uh, if you like scoring, you know, to these little snapshots in time. And to Tom's point at the beginning of this, it's all about the trend. It's not about necessarily um, the absolute value as to where you are. So are you trend? Is it things getting better or are things getting worse in a nutshell? Um, now if you do have a large organization um, with, you know, remote teams that you want to reach and so on, you may feel that a structured survey technique may be a good idea. Of course, you can do that. And you can look at emotional type response within that survey, as well as the quantitative or the rational type responses, if you like, as well. And um, the one thing that I would say is that great surveys are written by people who really understand how to write good questions. <laughs> and that is not as straightforward as one might imagine. So spend a bit of time looking at survey techniques before you jump in, you know, and embrace the world of MailChimp and you know, potentially upset an awful lot of people. <laughs> just just think a little bit, right, about how you structure those questions. Because if you're going to look at trend analysis, you want to repeat pretty much the same questions in a standardized fashion over a longer period of time. And some of this uh, engagement is going to change over years, not months and certainly not weeks. So uh, do bear that in mind. Very good. Thank you very much, panel. Some practical suggestions for um, everybody who's watching and a brilliant question. So thank you very much indeed, Paco. Appreciate it. Let's move on, Suchitra. We'll take our next question, please. Another live question from David McDonough. Would you put value in, a feed in feedback to measure effectiveness of stakeholder engagement? Or is there a chance this may be driven by the perspective of the individual? So, David, this really does talk to the point that I've just made. So it's a great question to ask. So thank you for, you know, your insight into this. You need to have a balanced input in all of this if you are to avoid, um, you know, the bias that one particular you know, individual or indeed team or community may bring to the overall outcome. It could be that the natural impact of this particular change that you're delivering is going to focus on one community. You know, that can happen sometimes. And for the greater good of the organization and the initiative, you need to listen, but not necessarily, you know, um, incorporate every little twist and turn that they're suggesting into your plan. 
Um, Tom, let's hear your thoughts, please, and then we'll go to Nick. Nick, I, th I think you said that beautifully, though, in, in terms of it's important to get an understanding of what that individual is feeling. Let them know that they're being that they're being heard, right? But not necessarily implementing every single little suggestion that comes into it. And and so, David, your question there, I, I think both sides of that that question are correct. So it's very likely that the input or, or perceived value of a certain engagement is being driven by the perspective of the individual. Um, and in fact, it is driven by the perspective of everybody who's in touch with that engagement. So all of the stakeholders are going to be bringing in their own perspectives. And I think all of that sort of feeds up into that feedback methodology. Of, so there, there is importance in being able to, one, temperature gauge, two, possibly create surveys for receiving feedback. But it, it is everybody's perception has a play in something. So it's important to continue to check in with that um, as, as much as possible. Thank you very much, Nick. And then Laurie? So that's pretty much what I was going to say. Um, you know, individuals might have insight we've missed. And so it's important to be open to that. Um, but at the same time, uh, it doesn't mean that we take every, every single suggestion and it needs to be weighed against the objectives of the program and uh, the overall good of, of what we're trying to achieve. Excellent. Thank you, Laurie. Yes, uh, I agree with Tom and Nick again. The only um, element I would add is remember earlier on we were talking about there are some stakeholders who may have more power or influence or interest than others. And it might be that those who um, could potentially put a roadblock on the project or could empower the project or enable the project, it might be those um, sort of high influence type stakeholders that we really do take on board this feedback with a, with a close magnifying glass. Whereas some of the others, it might be, you know, may not be the same approach for other stakeholders that we take for those stakeholders. Thank you, Patrick. So one of the opportunities that emphasizing these types of feedback loops can create for us is that while our vision for the project may be a reasonably fixed North Star, the actual steps by which we take to get there probably should be open to adaptation as we learn, as we get better perspective. And by opening yourself to this type of feedback from a broad array of different stakeholders, it gives you a better opportunity to learn, to prioritize, and potentially to reprioritize efforts to deliver a better outcome for the customer when it's all said and done. So I think it's actually very critical to emphasize creating many short feedback loops throughout your project and program for the express purpose of discovering all those things that you thought you knew that maybe you don't. Yeah, it's super important. Um, you need to get that balance right. The other thing that I would suggest as well, just 
to try and avoid that uh, bias, you know, of one individual or one community is if you can either increase the frequency of your sample rate or, you know, if you don't have any more of those people or alternatively increase the audience size so that you get a more balanced, you know, kind of input. Because the more inputs that you have, um, you know, the better the data is going to become. And always couch, you know, we are so influenced, aren't we, by, by maths still. Okay, even at my stage in in my career, I'm still working with colleagues who, you know, didn't necessarily have you know STEM as as their main you know kind of area of study when 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 they were younger. So as soon as you put it in a chart, it becomes official. So be super careful about caveating those reports when you turn them into charts, and and put on your sample size, put on your confidence rating, put on the the actuals. You're reporting facts. Okay, our findings were. X, Y, Z, but it was a sample of three, okay, or a sample of 3,000. So do share that sampling, you know, technique, the method. This is what we set out to find. This is what we found. And here are our recommendations for addressing what we found. That basic kind of principle is super important when it comes to managing the emotional and the rational elements. And over time, and it will work through for you. Okay, very good. Great question. Thank you very much indeed, David. I uh, appreciate you asking it today. Let's move on to Chitra. We'll take our next question. Next question is from Peter in London, UK. What are the panel's thoughts on having someone in the project team dedicated or at least focused on PR and communications? All right. So I guess this is for larger projects. Um, Nick, start us off. So uh, the first thing I was going to say, it depends on the size of the, of the project or, um, or the program. Um, I, I'm of the view that uh, if you can have somebody focused on communications, do it. Um, somebody who understands how to communicate, you know, driving change or running programs, you often understand content that needs to be communicated, but the how um, is, is often something that uh, if you have expertise, uh, makes that communication a lot more effective. People, people hear in different ways. People understand in different ways. And so um, in my experience, it is way more effective to have somebody who understands how to talk to different stakeholders um, uh, the most effective, effective way. So I would, I would say, if possible, have somebody uh, who's dedicated to it. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Laurie and then Patrick. Yes, sir. I, I would agree. I'd, uh, the only elements I would add is that if it's a project that has reputational risk externally, you're more likely to engage a PR or comms team, or if it involves internally a significant amount of change, for all the same reasons you're more likely to have a comms team, where if it didn't have those two elements, you may be less likely to invest in a specialist PR or comms person. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, thanks very much, Laurie. Um, let's go to Patrick and then we'll get to Euron. So it, the question should be driven first by the size and scope of the project or program, of course. I do think it's very important that even if you do have a dedicated resource, who makes communications, and I get, always get concerned when I see language like 
ER because it implies a one-way model of communications as opposed to facilitating a two-way communication. Um, I do think it's very important that the stakeholders within the project team embrace collaboration and visibility and transparency in their work to the fullest extent possible. It builds trust and it enables people to you know, perceive the work of the communications lead as genuinely servant leadership, as opposed to spin master, if you will. And so, mm. you know, even if you have a dedicated resource driving that for your organization, for your project, um, it's very important to emphasize that collaboration inside the project team as well as with the external stakeholders. Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Patrick. Euron, your thoughts, please. Yeah, Patrick uh, already gave uh, most of the answers on this because the openness uh, is uh, crucial. The more open a project is, the more effective it will be. It will get feedback uh, for things that uh, you might have missed. And that's also why I'm saying if you want to be a good project manager, you should be permanently communicating with the society around you. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's quite interesting, the language in the question, because we've got, you know, PR and communications um, kind of listed there. Um, I do wonder sometimes on projects if if PR gets gets quite a bad a bad press. Am I allowed to say that? I probably am allowed to say that, yeah. Um, it's just mm -hmm. a term that sounds wrong. It just sounds wrong in this situation. And we associate it with, to Patrick's point, you know, the kind of the one way or the spinning or the, you know, that kind of stuff. Whereas communication sounds a bit more friendly. Um, and then when you think to yourself about a project manager, you know, we, we look for mentorship and coaching in so many different areas of project management, you know, complex areas, risk management and scheduling and resourcing and, you know, all of these sorts of things. But you know what? We probably need all need coaching on how to talk to others, how to engage others, how to relate to others and how to drop those shoulders a little bit more and just relax and speak from the heart and to be our authentic selves instead of the persona that we assume as we walk into the building in the morning. So just a thought for you. I do wonder if the question had coach in there, if we may have answered it a little differently as a panel. And it shows you how important selecting the right words is for a given audience and critically listening to that audience before responding. Very good. Let's move on, Suchitra, if we may. Take our next question. Question from Charles Anderson. If our project is running using a more agile approach, when should we engage other stakeholders than our product owner? Patrick, start us off then, Euron. So you certainly want to engage them at the very beginning to help the product owner identify requirements, write stories, help prioritize the different stories to help build out their initial stab at a backlog. And then every iteration, when you're doing a demonstration or some type of a sprint review, it's extremely important to involve real people in that review. At some point, the product owner gets a little too smart for school because they know how the solution is supposed to work. And it's really important to extend that model to 
regular users, not just power users either, but real standard people doing the work to make sure that the product is fit for purpose and it's consumable for the typical user doing the job. Excellent. Thank you very much, Yuren. Yeah. Um, if you are a, a, a Scrum Master, uh, then you're, uh, of course, uh, also making sure that the organization understands uh, the agile way of working. And that's not specifically the product owner role, but I also see that uh, the product owner is one of the most busy roles there. So uh, I usually always need to facilitate the product owner to make sure that he or she will have the alignment with all the other stakeholders. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. We've just got time, I think, to fit in a couple more questions before we wrap up. So, Suchitra, let's crack on and take the next question, please. Question from Sandra Johnson. What methods are most suitable for engaging with stakeholders who are located remotely? Okay, so remote stakeholders. Patrick? I would begin by asking them what techniques are accessible to you that make it easier for you to engage. Most organizations embrace certain types of shared meeting programs, shared chat technologies, shared Kanban or other types of visual boards. So it really depends on the culture of that organization and the different tooling that they've embraced, especially given what we've all learned the last two years during the pandemic, which has required so many of us to embrace remote working. So you know, I tend to try to lean toward whatever techniques and tools are natural within the organization. Thanks, Patrick. Nick? So I fully agree with Patrick. You know, use the culture tools that uh, the organization is using. The, the only thing I would add is where possible, particularly in smaller engagements with stakeholders, um, and, and not, not necessarily all the time, but most of the time, put your cameras on. Um, you know, it's difficult yeah. enough working remotely, uh, but at least this way, there is some sort of eye engagement and, and a view on, uh, on, on body language. It doesn't work all the time and it's not suitable for, you know, I, I would never make it an absolute rule that you have to, because there are certain times where it's just not, not right. So, um, but I would encourage that as part of the culture within small group meetings. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Um, uh, Laurie, let's come to you, and then I'd like to bring in Tom for his thoughts on this. Uh, I, I agree with the other comments. I would, I would also add, when teams are remotely located, it's often good to keep things simple, more so than usual. So when you're co-located, things can get complicated, but because there's that organic exchange of information, everyone kind of naturally knows everything. But when teams are remotely located, you want to use simple work breakdown structures, simple reporting, simple everything so that it's easier to roll out and there's less nuances that tend to get lost when you don't have that co-location. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Tom, what are your thoughts about you know engaging with people working remotely? Right. And this 
This feels like an improv exercise right now because it's we're hearing yes and, yes and, yes and. These are all wonderful comments and, and I completely agree. I think one, one piece of advice that I, I would impart is more operational and more simplistic, but it makes a world of a difference. Don't schedule meetings for 30 minutes and 60 minutes. If you can, make them 25 minutes or 50 minutes or 45 minutes. This gives people time back. It doesn't, and if people are, you know, they have that calendar where it looks like Swiss cheese, right? It's, you have very little breaks. Morale goes down. If you don't have the ability to get up, simply use the restroom, make yourself some lunch. You know, it, it, over time that really does wear on you. And we notice this in our organization. Um, and in fact, we're, we're entirely remote and have recently implemented at meeting times that were 25 minutes, 45 and 50 minutes. And it is already in a, a couple months time made a world of a difference. Right. Right. So it's the simple things often, isn't it, which are the most um, effective. I, I think one of, one of the things that I would suggest is that um, uh, generally, okay, people want to be collaborative and they want to hear and engage with others. We're social animals, uh, human beings. So we, we do really do want to do that. But we don't always set out with the right toolkit to do it. So if you're joining colleagues on Teams or Zoom or whatever it happens to be, then allow for that. Allow for the quiet voice to be heard by using some voting technology. You know, allow people to make their comments, raise questions, vote up the questions of others. You know, I'm not pushing Slido here, but we do use Slido ourselves internally as well as externally. And it's that kind of... You know, other products are available, but there are you know many tools now that you can dip into that actually help folks to engage with you, and also importantly, to be cautious, be sim- simplistic in your use of language. And what I mean by that is, you it takes a lot of effort to distill your messaging into clear and concise terms. What was that famous quote? If I'd had more time, I'd been able to write a shorter letter, something along those lines. That really applies to this situation of getting input from colleagues who are working in a second or a third language around the world. So allow that, bake that into um, your approach. Um, So very good. Well, look, well done, um, everybody on the panel. Some fantastic uh, answers and some great questions uh, from our producers, our audience today. Uh, So thank you very much indeed for asking your questions online. What we're going to do now is we're going to hear some closing remarks. We're going to walk around the panel. So Yurin, I'm going to come to you first and then Patrick. Yeah, the closing remarks, of course, uh, stakeholder engagement. If you don't engage with the stakeholders, you may still have the result of a project, but it's laying on the floor, rotting away. So you better make sure that what you do is really what everyone needs. And to understand the value, yeah, you need to do that stakeholder engagement. Thank you very much indeed. You're in, Patrick, and then Nick. Projects produce outputs, they produce deliverables, but that's not what customers really invest in. They invest in results. They invest in specific outcomes they're trying to achieve. And it's critical to understand in the eyes of each stakeholder family, what is valuable to you? 
what is the value proposition from that particular stakeholder's point of view. In that way, we can ensure that our projects facilitate a value stream for all the relevant stakeholders. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed, Patrick, Nick, and then Laurie. So just to reiterate, you can have the best technology delivered, but it's people who use it afterwards. Um, and if people aren't happy throughout the delivery, they're not going to use it. Um, and, and so it's absolutely vital for the long-term use of whatever you are implementing or changing that the people are along for the ride, they're happy, and they're willing to use it going forward. So this is vital. Thanks very much indeed, Nick, Laurie, and then Tom. Yes, it's just uh, so important to as much as possible to have stakeholders aligned and engaged. And if we're not communicating, everybody's got a different mind map of why we're doing the project and how we're doing the project. So the more we engage, the more we learn, and the more we can get that alignment that we're looking for. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Tom, and then we'll hear from Suchitra. And when, when thinking about stakeholder engagement, oftentimes, even I, my, myself, I perceive the word stakeholder as somewhat removed from others. But at the end of the day, we are dealing with people and we are building relationships with them. So don't forget to, to think about the, the person with whom you're interacting and, and just try to get a sense of where they are. And I, one thing I actually am going to take away that, that was recommended, I love, love, love the idea of that sort of temperature gauge just by colors. And over time, you can visually see that changing. And if a relationship starts to suffer, you start to notice it and can and work on cultivating that, cultivating that back in place. Absolutely. Great idea. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Sachitra, your thoughts on today's episode? It's been a great discussion, Nick. And thank you to all the panelists. We've had some amazing live questions and previously asked questions. So it's been a great show. Thank you. Okay, very good. Well, look, um, I'd like to thank everybody again uh, for all of your input today uh, during the show. It's fantastic. Uh, great job. Um, now, if you've been inspired by our panel today and you're getting value from our content, then please do leave a comment below and help spread the word by liking and sharing the video online to your uh, colleagues, your community. Coming up in episode 45, uh, this Friday, the 4th of March at 2 p.m. GMT, we're going to turn our attention to how to build better business cases. And this is really a critical skill for everybody who is trying to learn and improve and progress their careers. Next week, Monday the 7th, if you're a mid-career project manager, this is a show not to be missed. All right, we're going to be focusing on how to build your project management career. So if you're early to kind of mid-career, this is really the focus for you. Friday the 11th, in episode 47, we will be discussing how to become a PPP specialist and bridge that gap between the worlds of the private sector and the public sector for um, delivering a value back to citizens. Subscribe to the show and we'll send you a personal summary of what's coming up next and how you can join us here on the panel and level up your career with APMG. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll see you next time.